mundane as you went through it. But then, as you look back, it had such a significance. It was a turning point. It was one of those moments that you didn't notice it while you went through it, but then reflecting on it afterwards, you saw that it was life-changing. I, I was, uh, in 2008, I, I was ETSed out of the Army, and I was looking for work, and I couldn't find any. It was the beginning of the recession. Things were difficult, and all the jobs that I had lined up, nothing seemed to come through. And, uh, but providentially, I was still an employee of a grocery store that I worked at just after high school. I remember as I went to quit from that job to join the military, my boss said, why don't you just take a, a military leave of absence? We'll keep you as an employee, and uh, if you ever want to come back, you can come back. So I did that, and I, uh, I took a leave of absence, and then years later, I couldn't get a job, and I went to the grocery store, and they said, oh yeah, you're still an employee. Come, we're, we're glad to have you back, and I, I didn't think anything of it until two years later when I went to quit from that job. I was uh, working nights, uh, stocking the shelves in this grocery store while I was building my landscaping business. And over the course of the two years, I built the business up large enough to support my family. And so I quit the night job. And when I went to quit, they said, well, because you have been employee for almost 10 years now, and you have this much stock that we have given to you each year that you have invested in our company. I thought, wow, that's wonderful. You know, there's a large amount of stock. It was supposed to be kind of a retirement thing. They said, in the next five years, you're going to begin receiving payments, and they'll come once a year for five years. Okay, I didn't really think much of that either. Wonderful. Okay, great. The Lord's providing for us five years, and we find ourselves selling our business and going to seminary, and we receive the very first check that helps put us through seminary, paid our way through seminary, helped pay for tuition, and helped even pay settle us here. In fact, we wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for that grocery store. That grocery store that, by the way, I did not want to go work for again, right? I worked for it after high school. I didn't want to be there. I, I couldn't figure out what God was doing, but God in his plan was taking this mundane event and using it for his glory to bring me and my family even here today. How many of you have had those kinds of experiences? Just a simple event, but then you look back and you see God's providence working through it all. You see, the events of John chapter 2 are that way. It's a simple event, a wedding, a wedding fiasco. Many weddings have fiascos, right? You run out of something or something's not quite right, and that happens here. And Jesus just happens to be there and is able to intervene and provide a solution for the problem. Okay, yeah, it's wonderful. He supplies wine that was running out. Not very many people know that Jesus is the one who did that. The butler, the disciples, his mother Mary. But other than that, it's a fairly mundane event. But the way that John reflects on it years later when he writes this gospel account It becomes a theological parable for all of redemptive history. And we see as John brings out the depths of this experience as he reflects on it years later, that it was a simple event, but it was an event that began to manifest the glory of the Son of God, the dawning of the new creation. 
So if you have a Bible, please stand with me. We're going to read together from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And we stand for the reading of the gospel. When we read the gospel, we stand out of honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is also printed for you in your bulletin. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory that we behold in the face of Jesus Christ. As this, the first of his signs that demonstrated that manifested His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Father, as we come now, give us eyes to see that glory, to see the awe and the wonder of the dawning of the new creation in Christ Jesus. May our hearts be open to receive this word, for we pray it in Christ's name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. The wine is running out. You do not want to run out of wine at a wedding, especially a wedding in the first century. But I want you to notice that John right away is trying to build something, some, some uh, significance into this text. It's not just a story of a wedding and a problem at a wedding. He says, on the third day. Why does John say on the third day? Now, if you notice, and I didn't really draw our attention to this because it's hard to explain until we get to this point. But if you went back and you look through chapter 1, you would see repeatedly throughout the text, beginning at verse 29, that John says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And then in verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with his two disciples. And then again... On verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Over and over and over in the text, John is drawing our attention to uh, several days that go by. And if we count them all up, it adds up to seven days. Seven days, a full week of days. And on the seventh day, Jesus is manifesting his glory by turning water into wine. That's what John is drawing our attention to. This significant event is not just any event in the life of Jesus. This is history in the making. 
This is where we are shifting from one age to another. And I'm going to draw that out in a moment. But John is subtly telling us that Jesus, on the week of days, manifests his glory. He's right away saying, look, this has more significance than just a wedding. Now, it's at Cana of Galilee, which is where Nathanael was from, and the mother of Jesus was there. Notice that John, and you'll notice this throughout the gospel, does not name Jesus' mother. He does not call her Mary. Now, maybe it's because there are many Marys in the gospel account and he doesn't want to confuse them. But probably it's because, if you'll remember, at the crucifixion, what does Jesus tell John from the cross? He says, your mother and mother, your son. And he charges John, the apostle John, to care for his mother after his death. Though it's probably John is trying to protect the identity of the mother of Jesus. I want to just walk through the elements of this story. Jesus is also invited to this wedding. And it's probably because either this is a relative of of Mary's or she is perhaps responsible for providing hospitality. Maybe it's a family member, a close family member, enough that she knows the inner workings of what's going on at this wedding. She knows when they're running out of wine. This is not something that all of the guests' information they would be privy to. So she invites her son, and he brings his disciples, probably the first five that he's already called, which is uh, uh, Andrew and John, the apostle John, Philip, uh, Peter and Nathaniel, and uh, these are probably the, the, the only disciples that Jesus has called at this point. And so they go to the wedding with um, the mother of Jesus, and of course, as soon as they, it seems like as soon as they get there, the wine runs out. Uh, and I don't think we need to speculate into uh, the uh, alcohol consumption of the disciples. I don't think that's what they're getting at. But A problem arises and Mary, Jesus' mother, is so comfortable with Jesus and his resourcefulness as a son that she goes to him and she tells him this problem. Now, maybe that's because Joseph, her husband, has already passed away. He probably passed when Jesus was younger and Jesus, being the oldest son, had to rise to the responsibility of the head of the household taking over the family business. He's referred to not only as a carpenter, a carpenter's son in Matthew 13, 35, but also as a carpenter in Mark 6, chapter 3. He probably resumed the responsibilities of his stepfather, Joseph. And so Mary probably relied on him to support her, to care for her in her widowhood and to supply the needs of the whole family. And so she feels comfortable coming to him and and telling him of this problem. And of course, it's a veiled question. There is no wine, and the implied question is, can you do something about this? Can you fix this? This seems like something you can do. And Jesus has a very interesting response to her. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if I were to talk to my mother and say, woman, I would probably have received a backhand, right? Or something like that. In our culture, it's disrespectful. Uh, But it's probably closer to something like ma'am. 
it is a, it is a term that's meant to provide some distance. It's impersonal. He's not saying mom. It's not time for me to do that. He's saying something that's meant to distance her from him, but it's still respectful in their culture. He wants to create an impersonal atmosphere, and he responds with this very cryptic statement, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean, my hour has not yet come? As we if we traced out the way that John uses that language in the rest of the gospel, we see that it often refers to the hour of his suffering, his death. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this very purpose I have come to this hour. He's referring to his suffering on the cross. He's pleading with the Lord to remove that cup from him that hour of suffering. But what is that phrase? How is that significant in this statement that he makes to his mother Mary? And to understand this, we need to understand the Jewish framework for history, how they looked at history. They divided history into two ages, the present evil age and the age that is to come, or the latter age days. And they saw in the prophets that when the Messiah came, he would bring in the latter days, right? The text we read from Isaiah 25 talking about all the blessings that God would bring to his holy mountain is talking about the blessings of that age that is to come. We would, we would say that's the new heavens and the new earth, right? When the lion lies down with the lamb, when there's no more suffering and no more pain, so they had, the Jews have this two-age framework. The age, this evil age, is this present sinful condition awaiting a Messiah. And the people of God are waiting for Jesus to come, not knowing that He is the Messiah, as this is the very first of His signs that demonstrates that He is. Well, one of the symbolic things uh, uh, one of the things that symbolizes that age to come is feasting and wine. We saw that in Isaiah 25. A, a feast of well-aged food, of well-aged wine preserved, right? That's the image of the new heavens and the new earth. Wine running out is symbolic for this present evil age drawing to a close. You see, the promises of God were great. They were good, and they served their purpose in its time. The old covenant types and shadows were meant to lead the people of God until the Messiah came. In the sacrificial system, in the beauty of the temple, in coming and worshiping together as God's people, and all of the promises that God gave look forward to that age to come. The promises were filled with uh, images of feasting. And when Mary comes to Jesus and says the wine is running out, John is drawing our attention to the fact that this present evil age is coming to a close. It's coming to an end. And in that way, the mother of Jesus represents the last of the old covenant saints. Those saints who look forward to the Messiah coming. You see, we have the completed scriptures 
We know that Jesus has come. He's already suffered and died and rose again from the dead. We have the completed picture. But they didn't. They looked forward in anticipation to the coming of the Christ. And it's instructive also because we still continue in this present evil age. We are still, in some sense, waiting for the age that is to come. The promise is to be fulfilled in the latter day. And we call this distinction the already but not yet. It is true, and we'll draw attention to this beginning at verse 6, that all the promises of the latter day are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They find their completion in Him, but yet we still wrestle with sin. We still have pain. We still suffer. We're still waiting for the Messiah to return again. And so we are very similar to the mother of Jesus and to the guests at this wedding. We're waiting. The new creation has began in Jesus, but we await Him to come and bring it to completion. And so the faith of the mother of Jesus is instructive. right? We see in her implied question, they have no wine. Can you do something about this problem? That's faith speaking. As she is trusting that Jesus can do something to fix this problem. But the faith that's on display is is not just an empty thought, like I'm sure that he can do something. No, this is the faith of a mother, right? Listen to what she does. She says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother, chastened as she was, went away and forgot about the problem. No, that's not what it says. It says his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Did you not just hear what Jesus said? He said, it's not my hour. But then she steps out in faith and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. She believes and her belief results in action, in obedience. You see, bare belief is not saving faith. Saving faith is the kind of faith that grabs on to the promises of God and it steps out in action. See, oftentimes we, we give we are so pious that we give God escape clauses to our prayers, right? We pray those difficult prayers, and then we say, nevertheless, your will be done, right? In that way, we can guard our faith so that if God doesn't answer, we can say, well, it must not have been his will. And that is all true. But is that faith that is crying out to the Lord expecting him to answer, No, it's faith that doesn't want to get hurt. It's faith that doesn't want to act. It's a way of protecting our faith when God doesn't seem to act. More more importantly, we don't it leads us to inaction. You pray, Jesus, save my family and cause my children to come to faith in you. But yet you continue to interact with them in the same way. You don't change the way you speak to them, the way you love them, the way you lead them the way you walk alongside them. You don't get engage in practices that will help with that. You don't do family worship. You don't open the Bible together. You don't pray with them. See, it's easy to say, to ask, do something about this wine problem. It's another thing to go to the servants and say, do everything that he tells you to do. 
It's, it's one thing to pray, God, grant me a spouse, and then not step out and look for one. And not prepare yourself for marriage. You see, we're very good at, at couching the, the faith, but not stepping out in action. Faith is never alone, but it is always accompanied by our obedience. And our consideration of the things that pertain to the age to come should always prompt a discussion about how we are living now. I want to read this text from Peter because he's drawing attention to the same things that John is. He says in 2 Peter 3 verse 4, They will say to you, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter is saying that people will scoff at you and say the end, it's not coming. The days have been continuing since they were from the beginning. Jesus is not going to come back again. Just do whatever you want. But Peter said, if it's true that Jesus is coming and that he's going to expose the unfruitful works of darkness, how should we be living now? What kind of people should we be in lives of holiness and godliness as we wait, but also as we hasten the day of the Lord? How do we hasten the day of the Lord? We live as if he's coming back. Our lives reflect that they have been conformed to Christ because we know that at any moment He could come again. Or as Paul says, our every affliction in this present evil age is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Yes, we are still in this present evil age. But the promise of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth, has already begun it's already a reality in Jesus Christ. And that's what we turn to next as God saves the very best for last. Notice with me in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And these water pots were used by the Jews to wash everything. They had cleanliness rules for everything, all their eating utensils and their persons. They had to wash themselves. So they have lots of water there prepared to maintain their purity. 
And this, these water pots symbolize the inferiority of the age that they, we live in, that the Jewish economy was in. It, these Jewish rites of purification, of cleanliness, were good for their time. They served their purpose. They brought the people of God to the Messiah. But Jesus turning this, these water pots filled with water into wine is symbolic of the age to come, of saving the best for last. Jesus commands them to be filled to the brim, almost overflowing. Right? And we get a picture of the fullness of the new covenant, of the promises of the new heavens and the new earth. You see, there was a custom, and it it makes sense that you put out the best wine at first when people are sober, when they can taste it still. And then as they become inebriated, you give the substandard stuff till you're finally giving the very worst at the end, and you're hoping that they're so drunk They don't know that they're drinking the worst. And so you started off the wedding good on a high note. You had the best, and then you proceed to the worst. But when Jesus does things, he flips that on its head. He said, what came before was good. It was good. The mosaic economy with all of its types and shadows was meant to lead you to me. But it's not enough. It never was designed to be enough. It's water. But what I'm going to give you is the best wine, and I've saved it for last. I've saved the best for last. There's two things I want to just mention briefly just to get out of the way before we talk about the main, uh, in, the main point of this. Jesus is not a teetotaler. Um, but we need to be cautious in the, in the Christian's use of alcohol. It is true that we, as fallen creatures, can use every single one of God's gifts in harmful and destructive ways. Sex, food, alcohol, anything that God has given as a gift can be abused and used for idolatrous purposes. But that doesn't mean that it can't be used at all. We sometimes draw a false Arbitrary lines to say that, well, if something could lead me to sin, I would build a fence around it and not go there so that I never sin. Now, some of you have struggled with alcohol in the past, and it is wise for you to build a wall and say, that's not something I'm going to engage in because I can't do it with moderation, and I can't do it in a way that glorifies and enjoys God. You see, John the Baptist was a teetotaler. He did not drink any wine from his youth. He had taken a Nazarite vow. And they condemned him. But Jesus was a drunkard, they said. He drinks and he eats with tax collectors. Luke seven thirty four. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Just as a side note, this is completely free. The word teetotaler probably came from a speech of a man named Turner, a member of the Preston Temperance Society, who having a speech impediment could not pronounce total. Total, he said. And so they called him teetotaler, right? Uh, I had no idea what that meant, so I had to look it up. That's totally free. 
Wine in moderation is a gift of God to gladden the hearts of men. But it can be used wrongly. It can be used in sinful ways. It takes discernment as all wise stewardship of God's gifts do. I would commend to you the pattern that Paul sets out in Romans 14. He's dealing with the weaker brother and whether or not somebody should eat meat. That discussion is instructive for you when you're dealing with these kinds of issues. We do not want to destroy the faith of one of our brothers because we can celebrate in God's gifts and they cannot. Paul says, if that's the case, I would never eat meat, right? So we don't want to use our freedom as a cover-up for sin. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to the fact that this is the very best wine. Look at verse 10. It says, And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You see, I have no doubt that a sommelier would be able to discern the very place that this wine came from. I don't know if you've watched a wine taster. They're quite unique, right? They can discern all kinds of delicate things. They have refined palates, and they know this wine came from this region. It was produced around this time. That's incredible, and I have no doubt that what Jesus created would be identified in that way. Jesus made wine which, by the way, is not an overnight process. It's not like you just put grapes in water and then the next day you have wine. It takes years. You have to cultivate the vines. Then you have to uh, uh, crush the vines. Then you have to ferment the, the wine. Then you have to siphon off all of the bad stuff that's left in it. It's a long process. And Jesus does it instantly. He turns water into wine in a moment. Some of you have a lot of trouble with an old earth or a young earth. Do we live in an earth that was made six or 7,000 years ago, or is it millions of years old? I want to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus, in an instant, made something that is impossible to make in an instant. You cannot make the very best wine in an instant. Jesus can speak and bring wine that would have satisfied anyone as coming from a certain place and to be the quality of having the very best characteristics in an instant. So he can make a rock that looks 65 million years old and be only one day old. He can make a star that is shining on us but is already burnt out billions of years ago. It's not difficult for God to do the unthinkable because he spoke the world into existence. I would challenge you. Look at this event and see. It's impossible to explain it any other way. Now, while I think this passage does point to the goodness of wine and and the sovereign power of the omnipotent creator, that is not really the main point. John is drawing our attention to a much deeper reality in full display through the manifestation of the glory of Jesus. Glory which leads the disciples into a deeper faith. What was that? It wasn't merely the miracle, but that the miracle pointed to the dawning of the age to come, the dawning of the new creation. It was wonderful 
that he changed water into wine. But it's this, it, John draws our attention to this is not just a miracle. It's a sign. It's a sign that manifests his glory. And what do signs do? They point to a deeper reality. The Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of your union with Christ. That you are so closely identified that when He died, you died. When He rose again, you rose again. It's a sign that points beyond itself to something deeper. So what does this point to? It points to the dawning of the age to come. That In Christ, the reality of the latter days, the promises that look forward to the feasting and the wine, Jesus is the amen of that. Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus is the Messiah. And the fading glory of the old covenant has come to an end. Pictured in the wedding running out of wine. And the water pots stand for this age. And the new wine that is better stands for the age to come. You see, on the seventh day, Jesus turns water into wine. He ushers in the new creation. Listen to the language of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. What is that? What is that cover that's cast? What is that veil? Well, He explains, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And Jesus is saying, That's what's happening right now. That's what's happening when I'm changing water into wine. I'm ushering in the age that is to come. Not everybody saw it. Not everybody saw and believed. John draws our attention. Jesus, this is the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. What do you see? When you look at this story, what do you see? Do you see a miracle? Wow, that's great. He turned water into wine. Or do you see the dawning of the new creation? Do you see that Jesus is bringing the old age to completion and inaugurating the new age in his life and, of course, in his death and his resurrection? Do you see a miracle or maybe even not that? So many modern commentators explain this away. They say, actually, he was just joking. He just brought water to them. And this was to encourage temperance so that they didn't drink. Or do you see the glory of the dawning of creation? They might be saying, okay, I believe, but my life is not all about wine and feasting. I'm still dealing with suffering and pain. Death has not been swallowed up. I've lost loved ones. I've suffered heartache and pain. All my tears have not been wiped away. What then? It is true that the new creation has dawned in Christ and that we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. We who have believed in Jesus, Paul can say, have been made new creations in Him. As he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Amen. It's already true of you. You already are a member and a citizen of the new creation. But it's not in its completion. It's not fully realized. Its promise is so sure that Paul can say, you already are a new creation. Even as you wait while these current, momentary, light afflictions are producing in you the eternal weight of glory. You are therefore right now a new creation. And by faith a citizen of the heavenly city Jerusalem. And just as the disciples saw then, we get glimpses of the new breaking into the old. In communion around this table. In the fellowship that we have with one another. In the love that you share with your spouse or the love you have with your children. You've experienced those stabs of joy that, that C.S. Lewis talks about and is surprised by joy. We've all experienced that's the breaking in of the new heavens and the new earth. The thing that we are all waiting for when Christ comes again and finally puts all His enemies under His feet. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are in awe of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We marvel at the dawning of the new creation as we see the present evil age and we see the misery from sin and death and we know that the sting of death has been removed. The power of death was sin and sin has been defeated on the cross. And Christ is already seated in His heavenly throne, tasting of the new heavens and the new earth. And we long to be with Him. And we are with Him by His Spirit as we gather this morning around His table to fellowship with Him, to enjoy that communion and get a foretaste of the wine of the new covenant in His blood. So prepare our hearts to come and commune with You now. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Saints, let's...